Amen. Again, it's great to have you here tonight. Uh, in the evening service, we're in the middle of a sermon series in Galatians, Paul's letter to the churches in Galatia. So I'd invite you to take those Bibles again and turn with me there. If you're using a pew Bible, we're looking at page 973 in the pew Bible tonight. The text is Galatians chapter 2. <clears throat> Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 21. Our practice at Rincon is just to go consecutively chapter by chapter, verse through verse, through various books of the Bible, and trust that God will work on us as we read these ancient letters, and trust that in some way the Spirit will show us how they're relevant, applicable, and life-changing for us. So um, let's read this passage together, Galatians 2, 11 through 21, then we'll pray, and then we'll dive in. So hear God's word for you. But when Cephas, this is St. Paul writing, Cephas or Peter, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocriti hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law... I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if justification were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose." We need God's help to get this rightly, so let's ask him for that. Father, tonight we are coming from all sorts of places, emotionally, spiritually, physically. Some of us tonight maybe are struggling to believe. Perhaps some of us once believed and have since left that faith and are pursuing other ends. Perhaps some of us tonight come with a renewed and growing and thriving faith. And yet, Father, we pray that no matter where we're coming from tonight, no matter what we right now are dealing with in our lives, whether we're experiencing pain, tiredness, or great joy and peace day in and day out, oh God, we pray that you would grant to us the minds to know that right now you are here. You have ordained this moment for a time when you would meet with us through this particular part of your word. And right now, you want to work good for us. You want to work grace in our lives deep down into our hearts so that we would be changed. And Lord, there's nothing I can say. There's nothing we can dialogue about. There's nothing that 
these congregants tonight can hear that is going to change us. It's only the Spirit of God that's going to change. So Spirit, come and do that work in us, we pray. And we ask it in Jesus' name. We plead with you for that. Amen. When um, Margaret Thatcher was the Prime Minister of Great Britain, she used to go and visit uh, her the citizens of the realm, and she would oftentimes go to orphanages or nursing homes. And she tells a story of one particular occasion when she was in a nursing home spending time with various elderly British folks. And she was speaking with one particular lady, and she was sort of down on eye level speaking to this lady very closely. And the lady sort of had a blank look on her face and didn't really seem to, to understand the the the, 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 the amazing, amazing thing about that moment, being able to speak with the prime minister one-on-one, and Margaret Thatcher, being a very uh, conscious person, picked up on that and, and asked the lady, do you know who I am? And the lady said, no, I don't know who you are, but the nurse gets that question a lot, and she's really good at telling us who we are. So if you forgot, you can go ask her. I thought that was pretty good, too. Uh, this text is a text about, about forgetting our identity, about losing our identity, about what can happen to Christians from time to time, getting identity stolen from us. And so as we look at it tonight, I want us to understand that it's fundamentally important for our understanding and remembering who we are if you're here tonight and we've placed our faith in Jesus Christ. Paul's been writing this letter as a response to certain teachers that had come to the churches that he had planted in what is today south-central Turkey. It was then called Galatia. And these teachers had come in after Paul had left, and they had begun teaching in these young churches that belief in the Messiah, belief in Jesus Christ is very important. It's very necessary. It's very essential for being right with God, for being a part of God's community. But belief in Jesus Christ is not sufficient, they said. It's not all that you need. In fact, you must also Judaize, hence the name that the New Testament gives these men, the Judaizers. In order to be right with God, in order to be a part of God's family, you must not just place faith in Jesus, but you must also be circumcised, observe the boundary markers that set off the Jewish people from all the other Gentiles of the world. And so Paul had gotten wind of this teaching, which he thought to be a different gospel, which he thought to be a death knell to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and sent this later letter, which we call Galatians, as a response. And as we've been studying this letter, we've seen in the last couple of times, particularly from chapter 1, verse 11, all the way through chapter 2, 14, Paul's been telling his story It's a very long autobiographical section that he gives us here. And the point of his storytelling, of his sharing some of his own life, is to remind the readers in Galatia and to remind us now that he's a legitimate apostle. He has true apostolic credentials. And the gospel that was given to him was not mediated to him by any man, by any human, but directly by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Paul's told us about how meeting Jesus has changed him and about how meeting Jesus has given him as an apostle the authority to speak in the name of Jesus about what is true. Tonight, we reach the end of Paul's storytelling 
in chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, where he recounts for us what could only have been one of the most awkward moments in the history of the early church. And then he proceeds to, in verse 15, transition a little bit and give some theological reflections about this particular incident that he had with Peter in Antioch. And this second part of our text tonight is really the epicenter of the whole letter of Galatians. And as I read it, and as I'm sure most of you have read it before, it's, it's, it's very obviously a dense passage that we can't cover all of tonight. Uh, but we'll get to a lot of these things later in the letter. So tonight we're going to cover some, but not everything. Uh, but there's really two big things that, that I want you to see as we look at this passage tonight. Two big points for you. They're on the back of the outline there, or the outline's on the back of the bulletin there if you'd like to use that uh, to take notes or whatever. But the two big points, again, relating to our identity are simply this. Losing your identity and recovering your identity. So that's where we're headed. Losing your identity and recovering your identity is what I want to talk to you about from Galatians chapter 2. So let's dive in, looking first with me, please, if you would, at verses uh, 11 through 14. And we see here that Paul, as I mentioned, is finishing up the storytelling section of the letter by recounting what could only have been, as I said, a very tense, very awkward scene that he had publicly with the other sort of big dog, the other leading figure in the early church, the apostle Peter. Uh, But if we're really going to get what's going on here, let me just really briefly remind you what we saw last time. Remember, Paul had brought Titus with him to Jerusalem, and some guys had snuck in to that meeting that Paul was having with guys like Peter and James and John and wanted to compel Titus, who was a Gentile, to be circumcised. They had said, Titus, you must be circumcised if you're going to be right with God, if you're going to be a part of God's family. And Paul had said he stood his ground, he didn't give even an inch to them. And in that moment, Peter and James and John and all the leaders of the church in Jerusalem stood with Paul. They agreed with him. They said, no, you don't have to become Jewish You don't have to give up your particular ethnicity. You don't have to adopt anything other than Jesus in order to be right with God. The only key thing about Christian identity, they had said, is that you are in Christ. You have trusted in Christ, and that is enough. They had all agreed on that point. But then we get to chapter 2, verse 11. And we see that for some reason, Peter was not in Jerusalem. He was hanging out with the church in Antioch. And clearly, according to verse 12, he had been eating with the Gentiles, hanging out with the Gentiles, probably having a lot of bacon and pork and really having a nice time enjoying his newfound Christian freedom, right? And then certain people we read from James showed up. That's not to impugn James necessarily. It's just saying these guys from Jerusalem came. And when Peter saw these guys, Paul tells us, Peter drew back and separated himself. Why did he do that? Look at what the text says. He feared. He feared the circumcision party. And not only did Peter do it, but according to verse 13, Paul tells us the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically, along with Peter and even Barnabas. Paul's closest ministerial colleague and associate, the guy who had gone and planted the churches in Galatia with him, withdrew from table fellowship with the Gentiles. He reneged on the promise of the gospel. He again said, oh, wait, wait, we can't hang out with you and eat our bacon and our pork and and, uh, enjoy fellowship with Gentiles because you're not Jewish. It's not okay. It's not legitimate. They all caved to the pressure from these people that came up from Jerusalem. 
Paul says twice there in verse 13 that they were hypocrites. The literal word means uh, play acting. Every time I think of that word play acting, I, I think of the great, the great cultural landmark in American sitcoms from the 90s, Seinfeld, uh, one of the great shows of all time. And uh, George Costanza is one of the key characters on Seinfeld. I'm sure most of you, I hope some, most of you are familiar with him. But George is, uh, I always say about George, he's sort of the guy that always, he has no filters. He's just like pure selfishness writ large on one person. So all of our sort of worst moments and the things that we think and the things that we want to say but that we don't say because, you know, we have some social consciousness but our sinful hearts sort of well up. George says all those things and George does all those things. He is, he is an extremely selfish person and one of the things that George does regularly in Seinfeld is pretend that he's other people. He particularly really likes to pretend that he's an architect. He often does this to impress women, uh, to impress people, to make friends, to influence himself into uh, larger stratas of society. And things never go well for George, as you know if you've watched Seinfeld at all. He's a hypocrite. He is the definition of a hypocrite. His life is built around play-acting. That's exactly what Paul says, that Peter and Barnabas and the other brothers who were there in Antioch did And again, we noticed there that they said Peter did this and the others did this because they were afraid. Everyone fell back. Everyone that is except Paul, which is what led to this really awkward moment where Paul, in verse 14, stands up and in front of everyone calls Cephas or Peter out onto the mat and lays him a very harsh blow. He says, listen, Peter, I was here before these guys from James got here, and I'm pretty sure I saw you eating bacon and then picking your teeth with a toothpick afterwards. You've been not living like a Jew. You've been telling the Gentiles they don't have to live like Jews. You have table fellowship with them then, but then these other guys show up and you stop doing that. You try to, not only do you withdraw from them, but you also say, yeah, we should force these Gentiles to live like Jews. That is, that's just ridiculous, Peter. That's hypocritical. And Barnabas, you too, and all the rest of you. Awkward. (laughs) Can you imagine being there for that? Man, that would have been tense. You ever had one of those experiences where there's a really tense, sort of awkward conversation taking place in your midst, and you just kind of don't know what to say? You freeze up. It's it's painful. I'm sure that's how it was then. But Paul had to do it, friends. He had to do it because Peter was suffering from a case of amnesia. The Jewish Christians there were losing their identity, and only Paul, thank God for Paul, only Paul at this point recognized it. You see, only Paul realized at this point, only Paul had the courage to say, listen, for any one of you to say you are not acceptable to someone to whom Jesus has said you are acceptable is to deny the absolute foundational and substantial truth of the gospel, that through faith and faith alone, anyone and everyone can be a part of God's family. And so Peter, Paul said to Peter, Peter, you've got to repent of this. This is unacceptable behavior. You are going back on what we had agreed on in Jerusalem, and you're denying the gospel. Peter says, Paul says as much in verse 14. He says, you are not in step with the truth of the gospel. You're losing your identity. Now, I know that for most of us, probably for all of us, it's impossible to really get contextually how significant a thing it was for an ancient Jew to just sort of, in a sense, throw off their Jewishness and accept these uncircumcised 
um, formerly pagan Gentiles. That was a, a very radical social structure change. And we can't really grasp that fully today. We don't really get the particulars of this situation. But I would submit to you, friends, tonight, that we certainly, while not necessarily struggling with the particulars in the way that they did, we certainly struggle with this principle. Let me think about it with you um, this way. Is there anyone who could walk through the doors of this church that you would look at and ask yourself, what is he or she doing here? That person doesn't belong here. Is there, is there ever a time when you speak with another Christian and think, you know, that person just, that person just doesn't fit here. They don't really have anything in, in common with us. They're just from a completely different planet. They don't, they don't really belong. What things or practices do we adopt that send a subtle message that only certain types of people belong in the church, in God's family. Listen, we all do this. We all send messages like that in multitudes of ways. And when we do that, brothers and sisters, we are violating the oneness of Christ's body and the fullness of Christ's accomplished work all the time. Now, historically, that's taken some very sort of blunt and overt forms. Racism would be the most obvious example. But I convinced as I examine my own heart, and I bet that you would be convinced as you examine your hearts that there are many situations and many cases where it's not nearly as overt, it's much more subtle, but where we struggle with that exact same principle of violating the oneness of Christ's body and the accomplishment of Christ's work by saying about or thinking about another person they do not belong because they don't look like us, because they don't pay in the same tax bracket that we do, because they don't vote like us, because they don't dress like us, because they don't talk like us, for all sorts of reasons. And brothers and sisters, Paul is out to remind us, just as he was out to remind Peter, with great boldness, and yet with very, very fundamental importance, that when we find ways to break the fellowship of the gospel, we are going back upon what Christ has called us to be. We find ways to, to one-up others when Christ has leveled the playing field. Listen, the, the cure, the antidote that Paul wants you to get, that we must get, to that sort of one-upmanship, to that sort of hypocrisy, is simply this. It's, it's getting the gospel and really letting it work on you and seep down deep into the core of your being. Because listen, the gospel breaks down the barriers that our world loves to erect. Racial, gender, class, political, all sorts of barriers. And when we see that sort of diversity in the body, when we see those sorts of barriers being broken down, when we see people who look different and think different and make different and act different, but who love each other and believe in Jesus together, that's when we know the gospel is at work. Our identity is shaped, Paul's saying. Our identity is shaped by the gospel and nothing else. That's what Peter and that's what the other Jews in Antioch had forgotten. And so Paul talks to them about losing their identity, but secondly, he speaks to them about recovering or finding their identity. And we see that in verse 15. 
In verse 15, Paul sort of transitions and makes some theological reflections about this incident that he's just recorded for us in verses 11 through 14. And as I mentioned, these theological reflections are really, really important, but basically what Paul's doing here is giving us the reasons or the doctrinal points of why he was so so vociferous in his response to Peter, of why he stood so firmly and decided it was necessary to publicly rebuke a man with the standing that Peter has, of why we are all one in Christ and must remember our identity. He's saying, these are the reasons why I did this. And so he tells us really here how we can recover our own identity. And what I want to do for you briefly is, again, not cover all of this, but look at three things that Paul tells us within this second point. Three things that Paul tells us about identity recovery. The first is that our identity is as those who are justified. Our identity is as those who are justified. Look at verse 15. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So, That word there, justified, is the most important word in this whole letter. And it really gets to the rub of the issue between Paul and the Judaizers who had come into the Galatian churches. And as many of you, I'm sure, know, justification is a a legal term. It's a term that would be used in a court setting or in a forensic setting. And if you think about it very simply, if someone is a defendant in a trial, in a court case, there's one of two possi- there are two possible verdicts. They can either be declared guilty and condemned, or they can be declared not guilty and acquitted or justified. And what Paul is telling us here that is central to the gospel, what Christianity teaches is that Christians are guilty sinners whom God has nevertheless acquitted in his holy court. They are sinners, guilty ones, whom have been declared not guilty. That's what that word justification means. And Paul goes on to tell us that the means by which we are justified, the way God can do something like that, declare guilty people not guilty, and acquit people who are deservedly should be condemned is Through faith, he says, through faith in Jesus Christ and not by or through works of the law. So he's really getting, again, to the central issue that he had with the Judaizers here. And he's saying to them, and he's saying to the Galatians, that your standing with God depends solely upon what Jesus did. It depends 0% upon what you do or don't do. And that's the only way in which you can be declared not guilty. The only way it can happen is not when you can do enough to get your sentence lessened or even revoked. That's impossible. As Paul says, no one will be justified by the works of the law. The only way you can be declared not guilty and God can still be just is when you attach yourself to the innocent one, Jesus. And the way that happens is by faith. What does that mean practically for you now? How does that affect your identity? Listen, this is, this is, this is changing, life-changing truth. It doesn't, not because it's coming from me, because this is God's word. Listen, on that final day and right now, when you enter into God's throne room, as Hebrews 9.28 says, every man is destined to die once and to face judgment. You 
will not stand before God, the righteous judge, representing yourself when you trust in Jesus. Jesus represents you. Justification means that we will not have to come before God and present a list of our own moral debits and credits and hope to be acquitted. It's not like when you get close to tax season and you come in with all your tax documents and just sort of throw them in front of your accountant and say, please take care of that. I hope it turns out okay. That's not what it's going to be like. It's not based on what we've done. It's based on what Jesus did. And Jesus' record is perfect. That's what it means to be justified. It means that your standing with God is not based on what you've done or what you haven't done. Your standing with God is based on Jesus. I know that some of you have had experiences in your life that to this day haunt you. I know that some of you have done things about which you feel such shame or guilt or you had such a significant moral lapse or moment of weakness that even to this day, even if it was maybe decades ago, when you think about it, you are hard on yourself. You think, I can't ever let anyone know about this or I will be ruined. You think, I've got to keep this hidden and locked away and hope that I'm never discovered. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who wrote the Sherlock Holmes books, tells a story of when he sent a letter to six of the most influential and respected men that he knew. And all he said in the letter was, flee, all has been revealed. And by the next morning, four of them had left the country. You know, all of us, all of us to one degree or another have things in the closet that we're ashamed of, that we feel guilty over. And when we start thinking about spiritual things, we think if God only really knew how I was, there's no way he could ever accept me. If, if this is what it means to, uh, if, if, God, if, if God has to know everything about me, then there's no way that my standing with him can be legitimate because I'm not even going to tell any person about this, much less God. There's, there's no way I can really open myself up before him or anyone. Listen, justification and getting justification radically changes that sort of mindset. It frees you to be honest enough with yourself to know that I am more broken and messed up than I ever thought. But in Jesus Christ, I am more loved and accepted than I've ever dared to hope. Justification will change not just your status with God, but the way you think and feel about yourself. When you know that even though you are guilty and even though you have done shameful things and even though you've had moral lapses, God loves you through the merit of Jesus Christ. Wow. You can take a sigh relief. You can breathe deeply. You can have a life of freedom. Justification affects your identity. The second thing Paul tells us about our identity. The first is that we are those who have been justified. The second is that my identity is one who is crucified. Look at verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by Faith in the Son of God. So Paul sort of, to use a C.S. Lewis phrase, goes further up and further in here. He says, um, I know this is a really dense and mystical verse. By the way, I preached three sermons just on this one verse in 2008. And those are on the website if you want to know more about this verse. But really what Paul's telling us here is that our identity is not just one who is justified, who now has a right standing with God, but it's one who is crucified as well. 
Or to put it another way, Paul says that the gospel doesn't just tell us, listen, the gospel doesn't just say Christ died for you. The gospel also says you died with Christ. Look at the way Paul structures the language there. It's important. He uses a a perfect tense verb. I have been. It refers to a past action that has been completed. And it's also in the passive tense. I have been crucified. Paul's saying, this is something that has happened to me. I didn't actively crucify myself. I'm not like crucifying my own sin. I have been crucified with Christ. Paul is, he's stretching the limits of what human language can communicate here. And he's doing it to try to confer to you the belief that he had so strongly that your identity is so wrapped up in Christ that he can say that what has happened to Christ has also happened to you. The bond of faith that unites you to Jesus is so strong that Paul can say that when Christ died on the cross 2,000 years ago, in a sense, you died right then and there with him. You died to the power of sin. You died to the power of death. You died to the power of evil that's reigning in your body. And similarly, when Christ was raised from the dead, as Colossians 3.1 tells us, you too then were raised with him into newness of life, into the power of the Holy Spirit, into the freedom and the joy that the gospel brings. There's an amazing thing at the Tucson Botanical Gardens, which we take the kids to from from time to time. Um, As you're exiting the gardens, there's this beautiful little garden there filled with beautiful cactus, and there's this huge tree. And at one point, the tree is so sort of compacted, close, some of you may have seen this, to this other massive uh, saguaro cactus that it it really looks like they've sort of merged and become like one living organism. I mean, the first couple of times I thought, I thought that that cactus and that tree, they've they've grown together. They've, They've been fused. They've been merged so that like there's there's prickly pears and thorns coming out of the tree. That's amazing. It's not really that way, but it's so, they're so sort of compact that it's, it's sort of an amazing thing to look at. Listen, you are so compacted into Jesus. You are so united to Jesus that in a sense, in principle, everything that has happened to Jesus has happened to you. You are crucified. What, what does that mean? How does that affect sort of your day-to-day identity? Let me just, you know, there's a lot I could say here, and let me just tell you a real quick story about something that happened to me that this is just sort of intuitive. I don't know if this will resonate with a lot of you, but it's what popped into my mind. Um, you know, a couple weeks ago, and this happens to me often, and I'm sure it happens to you too, I was just kind of mad, irritated, had a bad day. It's taking it out on Marianne. It's taking it out on the kids, just a grump. And I'm sitting there doing the dishes, scrubbing, putting stuff in the dishwasher, just thinking everybody's against me, <laughs> you know? If only everyone would think the way I think and do what I tell them to do, everything would be so much easier. If only I could just watch the Cowboys lose to the Bears on Monday Night Football and be alone, everything would be fine. Just really full of myself, all about my problems. I'm the king of my universe. I'm the victim. And did, you know, all of a sudden, you know, I'm not going to say I heard anything, but I felt just a deep conviction from the Spirit of God 
saying, Luke, that is not who you are. And I felt a, and I, I don't feel this often, but I felt an urge to go and confess my sin. I felt an urge to reconcile with my family, just saying, you know, I've been, I've been a jerk. I'm sorry. I've been grumpy and irritable, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to be around me right now for crying out loud. I'm sorry. You know, the reason that happens to me and that happens to you, Christian, is because you've been crucified with Christ. That's sort of the theological maxims Paul's laying out here with flesh and blood on him. The reason that you, that you feel bad about your sin, the reason that you want to reconcile in relationships, the reason that you do good things isn't because you're good. It's because you're connected to the good one. And he's working on you and in you. And that affects your identity. Your identity is one who is justified. It's one who is crucified. And then finally, very briefly, your identity is one who is loved. Look at the end of verse 2, 20. I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Here's the amazing qualifying verb. Who loved me? Who loved me and gave himself for me? That verse always reminds me of what Paul says in Romans, another letter he wrote, where he says, you know, scarcely will someone die even for a really good man. But Christ demonstrates his love for us in this. While we, will, we were still sinners, he died for the ungodly. God the Father demonstrates his deep adoration of you in that he gave you his son and then he killed him. You know, I love all of you, but there is no way I'm going to give either of you, I'm going to kill either of my sons for any of you. I love you, but I ain't doing it. And I'm betting you wouldn't do the same for me either. But we don't love nearly as much as God does. And, you know, I love you and you love me, and I still wouldn't give my sons to die for you, but God gave his son to die for us when we hated him. We despised him. And he still loves you. I just want you to think about that for a minute. Let that sink in. God loves you. I suspect some of you right now feel really unlovely, feel really unloved, feel really unlovable. Your spouse you don't think loves you, your kids you don't think love you, your boss sure as heck doesn't love you. The students that you teach at school don't love you. Could I just have one relationship where I feel the satisfaction of another person who cares and loves and is concerned for me deeply? Friends, listen, the gospel in its fullness tells you that you have that relationship fully available to you at all times, and it's not a relationship with just any old Joe. It's a relationship with the eternal living God, the judge of the universe, the maker of all things. He loves you. Listen, if that doesn't affect your identity, if considering that and meditating on that and just soaking in that like you soak in a hot tub, if that doesn't do good work on you, and you haven't yet got the gospel, and you need to talk to me. Paul wants you to remember your identity, that your identity is you have been justified, declared completely guiltless. You have been crucified. You're dead to the power of sin, and the Spirit is alive and at work in you, and you are loved right this very moment by the infinite God of the universe. 
A great story that Christians need to remember and reflect upon is that old Hans Christian Andersen story, the, the Ugly Duckling. Remember that one? It's about the duckling that was really down on himself, had really low self-esteem because he wasn't much to look at. He was sort of an ugly duckling. He was rejected by his family, and it got so bad for him that eventually he's just going to, in the original story, it's actually kind of dark for kids, but (laughs) he's going to just sort of throw himself into this beautiful flock of swans and end it all. He's having suicidal tendencies there towards the end because he's so down on himself. And then when he gets to that flock of swans, they openly accept and embrace him because to this point he's never realized that he has now become a beautiful, immaculate, gorgeous swan. He needed to remember who he was. Brother and sister, remember who you are. In God's sight, you are not an ugly duckling. You are a beautiful, immaculate swan. Just as beautiful and just as immaculate to God as Jesus Christ himself. When you get that, you get change. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you that um, the gospel says things that are true about us because it says things that are true about Jesus. What is true of Jesus is that he died on a cross so that we can be forgiven and that he is at this very moment alive. What is true about us is that through a faith connection to him, we also have died to the penalty of sin, which we deserve condemnation. We've died also to the power of sin. Now we have been crucified with Christ and we get to experience your amazing and full and refreshing love day in and day out. And yet, God, we struggle to do that. Just like Peter forgot who he was, just like Barnabas forgot who he was, so too do we. And that leads to all sorts of bad things in our lives. So this week, help us to remember who we are in Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Let's.